There is much to be said about today's prison system in the United States. Whether you think it's an effective system or a system in need of a complete overhaul, we will let the facts speak for themselves. An estimated 6.9 million people are currently under the supervision of adult correctional systems. With only 5% of the world's population, the U.S. has 25% of the world's prison population, which makes the USA the world's largest jailer. Since 1970, the U.S. prison population has risen 700%. 93% of people in prison are male, 7% are female. Together, African American and Hispanics comprise 58% of all prisoners in 2008, even though African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately one quarter of the U.S. population. One in six black men have been incarcerated as of 2001. If current trends continue, one in three black males born today can expect to spend time in prison during his lifetime. About $70 billion are spent on corrections yearly. Prisons and jails consume a growing portion of the nearly $200 billion we spend annually on public safety. And prison is a growing industry. Between 1990 and 2010, the number of privately operated prisons in the U.S. increased by 1,600%. Over half of the private prison profits come from holding facilities for undocumented immigrants. In contracts with the government, some private prison companies demand minimum occupancy levels of more than 90%. These contracts guarantee that prison occupancy rates will stay at or above a specified level. If occupancy rates are not fulfilled, the government pays for the empty beds. As it turns out, private companies have a cheap, easy labor market and it isn't in China. It's right here in the land of the free, where large corporations increasingly employ prisoners as a source of cheap and sometimes free labor. Many prisoners are forced to work real jobs for private corporations, forcing down wages in the rest of the economy. One source reports that almost one million prisoners are doing simple, unskilled labor, including making office furniture, working in call centers, fabricating body armor, taking hotel reservations, working in slaughterhouses, or manufacturing textiles, shoes, and clothing, while getting paid somewhere between 93 cents and $4.73 per day. That is compared to the federal minimum of $58 a day. The nation's prison industry now employs more people than any Fortune 500 corporation except General Motors. Some people call prison labor modern-day slavery. A few companies who hire prison labor are Victoria's Secret, Boeing, McDonald's, and Starbucks. Solitary confinement, widely used in American prisons, is regarded internationally as torture. Prisoners held in solitary confinement are typically kept in a small, windowless cell for 23 hours a day with minimal access to lawyers, family, and guards. The number of prisoners currently in solitary is estimated to be around 80,000. Because of its prison system, the U.S. is the only country in the world where more men are raped than women. There were 216,000 victims of rape in U.S. prisons in 2008. That is roughly 600 a day or 25 every hour. If you like this video, click like and subscribe to our channel. Hello, welcome to the show. Pull up a chair and let's talk about prison and punishment. Amazing how it's all set so that we are the ones who go to prison. <laughs> Full disclosure, I spent one night in a U.S., um, it was a county jail. There's a difference between county jails and prisons. County jails are usually where they hold people while they're cooking up sentences and all those different kinds of things. 
And I also have spent two nights in a U.S. mental facility on a 5150 hold. That means that they can say, hey, I think you're crazy. And they can hold you for three days. And then after that, they have to march you in front of a judge to get that time extended. Quite a wonderful event. I don't think you've lived until you spent a couple of days in a nut ward here in the United States. Because remember, they're the ones who think that I am crazy. (laughs) Just be careful who you listen to. Anyway, um, I started off quite innocently. I was looking into um, debt prisons in this country. (laughs) Well, we do still have debtors prison here. And... um, Yeah, there's prisons all over this place. But let me start with a little story here from that book that Andy had found, The um, Poisonous Mushroom. Because it certainly seems like they have set up quite a penal system for the rest of us based on anything that they may want to charge us with, okay? So let me start off with just this short little story here. Are there any decent Jews? People are always saying that we Jews cheat other people that we lie and deceive. Not a word of it is true. We Jews are the most decent people in the world. Four Germans sit talking in a public house. One is a Jew, Solomon, who is telling the others that the Jews are the most decent people to be found anywhere. Zimmerman won't have it and cites cases of Jewish rogues he has met. The Jew gets uneasy and seeks a way out by saying, Oh well, but those are exceptions. The peasant joins in the talk and supports Zimmerman. Solomon gets angry. He has paid for the beer and still must listen to this sort of talk from them. You talk a lot of stupid nonsense, he cries, but not a word about decent Jews. And there are plenty of decent Jews. Am I not one? Well, was I not a soldier at the front? Did I not defend the fatherland? Have I not paid for your beer? You imprudent creatures, stupid goys. There is silence in the room. Then the worker gets up who has said little and throws a coin to the Jew. Finished, Solomon. Here is your money. We will not have you paying for us. But now shall you shall hear the truth. You liar. You never heard a bullet. You were indispensable and stayed at home profiteering. Then you were with the Reds, calling down with Germany. Long live the world revolution, you screamed. And now you are a decent Jew? Not a bit of it. There aren't any decent Jews. Solomon picks up his hat and runs like the devil from the public house. Everybody laughs. What a pity he has gone, says Zimmerman. I should like to have repeated the following saying to him. So often we hear the yarn, how brave such and such a Jew was, how he gave his money to the poor, and he was an angel in the world, a Jew like a pure angel. That must be a fairy tale. Who invents such things? It is the Jew himself who does it. Well... Let's get going here. I have a few different things in this file. I'm trying to work without a mouse, so I'm not able to really over-edit things these days. But that's the whole idea of a chat, is just to pull up a chair. Let's take a ride on what got me going. Okay, I was looking into, there was a um, new law that came out, and um, 
it's interesting, and that look that got me thinking about prisons. <laughs> and then there's something else that I'll get to here in a second. Let me read this piece. The next time someone tries to friend you on Facebook or follow you on Instagram, it could be a debt collector. New rules approved by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that's the CFPB, took effect on Tuesday. That was like this week. We're now December 2021. On Tuesday to dictate how collection agencies can email and text people as well as message them on social media to seek repayment for unpaid debts. And if you think this isn't going to get crazy, let me tell you the story what happened to me. I was getting into that lawsuit before I got into the lawsuit with Intel, okay? Things were kind of a mess, right? So I hired a temporary person to help me unmuddle things. The company was named Kelly Services. It's a temporary service here in the country. Well, things turned out I couldn't pay the bill, right? Because my life is thrown into circles. So I couldn't pay the bill. And I don't really remember how much the bill was, but I do know for a fact it wasn't for that much. Probably under $1,000, okay? They evidently sent out some court notice for me to appear in court, and I never received the court notice. Well, a lot of turmoil was going on, but I'm real sure I didn't receive the court notice, right? So next thing I know, a sheriff shows up with a warrant for me to pay this $500 fine, which was given to me for not showing up for this court appearance. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyway, and I was in the process of closing down my office. I mean, everything was in turmoil, right? Anyway, so I talked to the shark attorneys that were supposedly representing me. I went through four or five different attorneys, okay? And now it makes a lot more sense. But anyway, so bottom line is um, the attorneys told me that, because I said I didn't have the $500 to pay this fine. They said, all you have to do is go down to the jail and just set up a new court date, and that will waive this $500 fee. Well, they lied to me, okay? So I showed up. The first time I showed up, and it was a civil case, so they didn't even have my record. So the bottom line is, I talked about this in the past, the bottom line is, they locked me up for a night, okay? And the next day, because they couldn't mingle me with other inmates, that made them really angry. Because when you go into jail here on a civil case, they can't throw you in with the criminal cases, And because the jail only had a small section for women, they only had a couple of these, like, private cells. And then there was this one big, huge cell full of people who were drunk and stoned and maybe robbed a bank and that kind of crowd, okay? So they kept me in this holding area, and I was actually chained to a chair. And um, this was over a Kelly Services bill, okay? Imagine if I had been black and living in the South. I was chained to a chair, and probably I showed up there around midnight, so probably around 3 or so in the morning, they decided to process me through. So for the first three hours, I'm chained to a chair, and I'm still in my clothes and stuff, right? So they process me through, and they hand me this piece of paperwork, and they say, well, just sign this. And I said, well, what is this? (laughs) And they said, well, everybody signs it. Well, through my life, I've learned certain things. When they say everybody does it, or trust me, my, my antennas go up, right? So I said, well, what does this mean? And they said, well, that means for mingling you and I said well no I'm not going to sign it and of course nobody was happy to hear that right 
So then they took me from my chain chair over to a little cell. And um, yeah, it was just a little cell with a wooden bench in it. And that's where I spent the night. And the next morning, they um, threw me in a um, bologna sandwich and a box of juice. And um, I didn't eat anything, so I can't tell you how it tasted. <laughs> so that was about 7 o'clock. They had a new shift come in, and they threw in some food into my little cell. And then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, um, well, actually about noon or so, they, they, they took me out of my cell and, and put me into an actual prison jumpsuit, orange prison jumpsuit. And they put chains around my waist, chains around my hands. Now, for some reason, they didn't put chains around my ankles. But the part that they got angry about was because... Because I refused to be mingled with these other people, they had to treat me differently. Some of the privileges of being white and just owning a bill, right? So anyway, so what they had to do is they had to schedule a court appearance for me to take me to it because I guess I was now deemed unreliable. <laughs> so it took, um, and this was all to resolve a $500 issue, right? So it took two sheriffs and they had to put me in a van by myself because I didn't sign that paper, right? So they put me in a van by myself and took me to the courthouse. So where this whole thing got started was I was talking to Andy about it the other day, and I thought, you know, it's funny because I went in front of a judge, and the judge saw that I was there because of this bill for Kelly services, and it seems kind of debtor, like debtor prison to me, right, that they got me on a bill and were able to lock me up. So I started looking into the debtors' prisons here because they're going to be able to follow you on Facebook. They're going to be able to follow you on Twitter. Another really good reason to get the heck off of social media, okay? And one thing before I get on to the story here, the real story, is if you know anybody that's older who is having trouble, there's a group on um, YouTube called HELPS, H-E-L-P-S. Older people do not have to pay back old debt. There are laws to protect you. So anyway, so this is a debt conference here. So let's get moving along with this stuff because we actually, um, I first started looking into chain gangs. Chain gangs came in after the fake slave time, okay? And 100% of the reason why today I'm talking about prisons, because I think most of you are pretty smart people. You probably have a pretty good idea that this country is a penal colony, <laughs> hidden as the world's greatest democracy. Now, I would have to say the fact that they did this particular trick was actually quite evil genius, okay? get the entire world convinced that this is a great, shiny democracy when, in fact, it is a penal colony. And let me tell you why I think this, okay? I'm just going to give you some of the general facts here, because and I'll give you some things to look for yourself, because the main point is, is how we got so influenced here, right? Because it would have taken my parents' generation, they were born like in the mid-20s, they indoctrinated them with all of this stuff about, you know, the cops and laws and all that kind of stuff. I don't believe any of these laws were really to corral the rest of us in because I don't think that we in general have those kinds of intents. We don't think of these things. We don't think of stealing from our neighbors as our first resort or any kind of resort. So anyway, so what really got me interested here 
just beyond the fact that everybody's in prison here, or can be in prison. And if you think I'm joking about prison, well, go look at my shows about there's laws in place right now. There is nothing to stop them. Nothing. Okay, hear me carefully. Nothing to stop them from grabbing any of us, okay? They got me during rather calm times in the 90s. Nothing can stop them, okay? So, America is number one in incarceration. Over the past several decades, here we go again, we're in this time frame, right? Over the past several decades, the country has built the largest prison population in the entire world with the second highest prison population per capita behind the tiny African country of Seychelles. But how did it get this way? Although it may be easy to blame one specific event, the U.S.'s path to mass incarceration was decades in the making. The number of U.S. prisoners exploded after the 1970s. Here we are at that time frame, right? Starting in the 1970s, America's incarcerated population began to rise rapidly in response to a tide of higher crime over the preceding decade. State and federal lawmakers passed measures that increased the length of prison sentences for all sorts of crimes, from drugs to murder. I already talked about the drug thing, how they got the black people with the crack cocaine and <laughs> let the white people snort up that cocaine and give the black people the crack. So none of us went to prison, but boy, they sure did. And a lot of these people from my generation who got caught up in this thing in the 70s, to put a little perspective on this, some of these people are still right now in prison, okay? I danced right past that whole era. The white people were over there snorting coke in the 70s. The black people were over there huffing on crack cocaine. None of us went to prison, okay? None of us did. And now they're having a lot of problems with the prisons because of the elderly population because they went from locking them up from 20 years to 40 and 50 years. So let me get back here. So... But around the 1990s, the crime rate began to drop as the number of incarcerated Americans continued to crime. So they said, oh yeah, the crime is dropping because we got more locked up. After two decades of the crime decline, local, state, and federal lawmakers have begun to consider previous tough-on-crime policies. <laughs> oh, they're never going to cut this back. What they're saying, they're just trying to support crime went down, so they're just trying to support why are all these people locked up, okay? Although the U.S. makes up about 4% of the world's population, it accounts for 22% of the world's prison population. The U.S. is out of line not only with its developed peers, but also with authoritarian nations like Cuba, Russia, and China. And all you people from those countries have always been so jealous of us here. And little did you know, behind the prison wall here, <laughs> we're all just a bunch of flailing people who don't want to become inmates. Okay, and this is a great explanation. Part of the reason for America's high levels of incarceration is that the country has way more lethal crime than its developed peers. And unlike regimes like China, 
It makes less use of punitive punishments like the death sentence and forced evictions. But that doesn't explain the whole difference. Studies have shown the U.S. prison sentences are simply much longer than other nations. Well, and hang in there with me for a minute here because I have another reason for this story today. I have landed on, you know how I like a good backstory that these people write up, right? This prison thing has the most fabulous backstory that they've written to date. Okay, so just hang in there. It's a good one. So the laughing will start in a couple minutes here once we get past the serious part. Mass incarceration is predominantly black incarceration. See, we went from the fake um, slave days to the chain gangs. And uh, yeah, how's that worked out for us? Chain gangs are back. Uh, Black people are nearly six times as likely to be incarcerated as white people. And nearly three times as likely to be incarcerated as their Latino counterparts. You also... Note, when you lock a lot of black men up, you destroy a lot of families, right? Let's not let's not lose this in this little lock them all up equation here, right? It's always about destroying the family. And think about how those women and children suffer when the men are locked up. Gee, there's really something to this stuff. They may not know a lot of stuff, okay? They may have been screwing up their hormones like crazy, and I'll get to that. Because really, it's so bad that right now, actually... Childhood um, um, dementia is a thing now. Why? Because of these people and their hormones, okay? So, yeah, so one thing they do have straight, though. They do have this very straight, how to toy with our minds. They got that straight. I give them that, okay? So I got off on a spin here. I can't remember where I was going. Um Practically all crime resulted in longer prison sentences in the 1980s. That would have been around um, that fake Polly Klaus crime and that she supposedly got snatched out of her window when she was slumbering with her pals. Well, that whole case triggered the three strikes law because they supposedly Polly Klaus got snatched out of her bedroom. Another fake psyops. So one particular harsh form of sentence was a three strikes law. And that started because of Polly Klaus and her father, that woman, Mark Klaus, who runs around acting like such a vic. Oh, I just would like to grab those people by the neck. But I can't be violent like them, okay? I'll, I'll get back to comedy here in a minute when things calm down with my nerves over these people locking people <laughs> Lawmakers also passed truth and sentencing laws that require inmates to serve most of their prison sentences, typically 85% before qualifying for parole. Okay. So, the 10 countries with the highest incarceration rate. Well, the USA has number one spot. Number two, El Salvador. Number three, can't even pronounce it, Turkmenistan. Number four, Thailand. Number four, Paola. Number six, Rwanda. Number seven, Cuba. Number eight, Maldives. Number nine, Bahamas. And number ten, Grenada. Well, how did we get to accept all this stuff? That's the part that really amazes me. Because, you know, when I got locked up, everybody acted like, well, you know, you should sue them. Really? 
You think that's the plan? That has been burnt into our psyche here. Yeah, you can get justice. Go sue them. Get a lawsuit. You do realize that lawsuits are extremely complicated. I had a five-year lawsuit against Intel. They used every trick in the book to try to shake me loose, okay? But I was not going to be shook loose. <laughs> so, but they do these lawsuits and stuff because they know that they're going to overpower you at some point. Sadly, they never were able to overpower me, so they had to stop using my work. But that doesn't mean they didn't get to torture me for five years with their legal department and stuff. And my own legal teams were also against me and more on their team than my team. So, yeah, this idea got planted into our brains that, well, yeah, something wrong happens to you. You have recourse. Go to the courts. Sue them. Well, that is a total lie, okay? You do realize that less than 5% of lawsuits actually go in front of a court. The system is rigged to beat us down before we get inside of a court. So yeah, and only let me tell you, it took some pretty tough handling on my part to hang in there all that time with the whole world turning on me everybody calling me crazy. But yeah, maybe maybe I am a bit crazy. Maybe it took a certain bit of crazy genes in my brain to keep me going for this long. But that's okay. And like I said to a couple of them, I've talked to a couple of people who I knew from my past who are also transgenders. I said, you know what? You people seem to really want to focus on how crazy I am. <laughs> if what you people are calling normal, no thanks, okay? So anyway, so we got all these crazy ideas, typically from songs, typically from the movies. Go look up... Um, top movies about prisons. Go look up movies about chain gangs. Go look up about uh, people paying for their crimes. I don't believe that most of us would go so far as to actually murder somebody else. So these songs were written as deterrents, right? So that if you ever got that idea, you would be thinking about this song that you heard. Like, for example, Folsom Prison Blues, a very famous song sung by Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash was married to June Cash, two freaks with the initials J.C. You know, they like to wave around that J.C. stuff. It was written in 1953 and first recorded in 1955 for his debut studio album, Johnny Cash and His Hot and Blue Guitar. Blue Guitar, okay, 1957. Appearing as the album's 11th track. The song combines elements from two popular folk styles, the train song and the prison song, both of which Cash continued to use for the rest of his career. It was one of Cash's signature songs. Additionally, the recording was included on the compilation album All Aboard the Blue Train in 1962. Yeah, I got in 1957 his hot and blue guitar, 1962, he has All Aboard the Blue Train. And in 2014, Rolling Stone ranked it number 51 on its list of the 100 greatest songs of all time, 100 greatest country songs of all time. Cash performed the song live to a crowd of inmates at Folsom State Prison, that's in California, in 1968 for his live album at Folsom Prison. So I guess he got to go and record a live album <laughs> at the prison. 
This version became a number one hit on the country music charts and reached number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the same year. This version also won the Grammy Award for Best Country Vocal Performance Male and the 11th Annual Grammy Awards in 1969. Yeah, prison music, chain gang music. Um, chain gangs... Um, Chain gangs came into play um, back again in the 90s. They were doing chain gangs again. There's some women chain gang movies. <laughs> I think in the 60s there's a movie called Women on the Chain Gang. Anyway, go, go for a spin yourself. Just type in chain gang to see what you, um, see what you figure out. What is really key here, and let me define this prison thing, okay? And a little bit of the history. Now, I'm not saying I believe this entire history, but remember, they also write their own lies, okay? So we don't need to just start discounting everything. Incarceration efforts had, had been ongoing in England since as early as the 1950s. And prisons in the form of dungeons and various detention facilities had existed since long before then. Prison building efforts in the United States came in three major waves. The first began during the Jacksonian era. You know, Jackson, the guy that Trump and everybody seems to be fawning all over right now for some particular reason. And led to the widespread use of imprisonment and rehabilitative labor. Rehabilitative labor. What does that sound like? That sounds like slave labor to me. As the primary penalty for most crimes in nearly all states by the time of the American Civil War. So they started off with widespread use of imprisonment and rehabilitative labor. Okay. The second phase began after the Civil War and gained momentum during the Progressive Area bringing a number of new mechanisms, such as parole, probation, and indeterminate sentencing into the mainstream of American penal system. So, most prisoners, this is just my take on things, I don't believe that most prisoners, once they lock them up, ever make it off parole. Because when you're on parole, that means they can grab you back to prison at any time of the day, okay? So, the part about the 1970s is what really captured my attention. Where it said, in the 1970s, the United States engaged in a historically unprecedented expansion of its imprisonment system at both the federal and state level. And I am not going to get into all of the prison details. We have prisons all over this country. If the mood strikes me down the road, if you really want to hear more about the penal system, just let me know because I kind of want to finish with this part and get to the fun story, okay? Because out of this horror prisons came a hysterical backstory, okay? So, um, since, the since 1973, the number of incarcerated persons in the United States has increased fivefold. And in a given year, 7 million people were under the supervision or control 
of correctional services in the that that's people that we know of okay because remember there's ice detention facilities i mean there's detention facilities all over this place okay let's get to the fun part of this <laughs> this actually was a pretty good movie okay and it's right around that time frame if you do a search for the top 10 prison movies Bird, Birdman of Alcatraz will come up there. I, I'm not sure what their fascination with birds is, okay? So, let me tell you the story. And, um, <laughs> Birdman of Alcatraz, 1962. It was an American biographical drama film directed by John Frankenheimer and starring Burt Lancaster. <clears throat> It is a largely fictionalized version of the life of Robert Stroud, who was sentenced to solitary confinement after having killed a prison guard. A federal prison inmate, he became known as the Birdman of Alcatraz because of his studies of birds, which had taken place when he was incarcerated at Leavenworth Prison. He was allowed to keep birds in jail. When he moved to Alcatraz, Stroud was never allowed to keep any birds. But they made the story so that when he was on Alcatraz, he was doing this bird deal, okay? Now, how on earth did I think this was true when I saw it at the time? Well, because of how they set up their system, right? Because they call it a bibliographical drama film, okay, based on a true story. And then they admit, well, we changed around a couple of things. But what did I first hear? This story was based on a true story, right? So somewhere on some planet, this had to have been a true story, right? Because all of their people are the scientists, the doctors, the authors, the book writers, the storytellers, the comedians. That's all their people, right? So that's how... I think, because I was thinking the last few days, it's like, how exactly did I believe the Birdman of Alcatraz was a true story? Well, I did. Matter of fact, I actually toured Alcatraz Island. From San Francisco, there's a, well, I don't know now, but you can take a ferry over to Alcatraz Island, and they do a tour of that prison there. I took that tour. And, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, do I think they really have prisoners there? Oh, I don't know. It would take more brain power than I have today to figure that part out. <laughs> I don't know. If they locked anybody up there, it would have been one of us, okay? So I, I don't really know. But let me let me tell this story because it's a pretty outrageous one. <laughs> okay. So they're saying that when he was at Leavenworth Prison, they let him keep these birds in there, okay, and study these birds, okay? The film was adapted by Guy Trosper from the 1955 book by Thomas E. Gaddis. It was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Burt Lancaster, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Telly Savalas. That guy went on to, Telly Savalas went on to play a lot of bald-looking cops, didn't he? Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Thelma Ritter, and Best Cinematography. I have to say, the movie is brilliant in the cinematography. 
it really also, I've said this a million times before, it shows how their brains have rotted with time because this was actually, I really recommend, watch this movie. It was brilliant. And now when you watch it, you'll probably see it more as a camp movie and find it kind of funny when you watch it. <laughs> so here's the story. It's about a guy named Robert Stroud. That was played by Burt Lancaster. Robert Stroud is imprisoned as a young man for committing a murder in Alaska. He is shown as a rebellious inmate fighting against a rigid prison system. While being transported with other prisoners by train, he breaks open the window to allow the suffocated inmates to breathe. He comes into conflict with Harvey Schumann, who is the warden of Leavenworth Prison. While in jail, Stroud learns that his mother tried to visit him, but was denied and told to return later in the week. Outraged, he attacks a guard, fatally stabbing him. Stroud is sentenced to death, but his mother runs a successful campaign to have his sentence commuted to life in prison. The sentence requires him to serve in solitary confinement for the rest of his life. While in the exercise yard during a heavy rainstorm, Stroud finds a downed nest holding an orphan baby sparrow. He takes care of the bird and starts a trend. He and other convicts acquire and care for birds, such as canaries, given from outside sources. Stroud develops a collection of birds and cages. This is in his cell. He's developing these collections of birds and cages, okay? When the birds fall ill, he conducts experiments and comes up with a cure. As the years pass, Stroud becomes an expert on bird disease. <laughs> and becomes an expert on the subject. <laughs> I've held it together this long. Okay, just give me a break here. His writings are so impressive that a doctor describes him as a genius. So Stroud, while he's in prison, well, I forget how exactly he got into he got into jail somehow. He gets ticked off. He attacks a guard. He gets sentenced to death. He gets his sentence to life in prison. I forget what the first crime is here, okay? But he, he gets these cages and stuff in there. He can, starts conducting these things. And um, as the years pass, Stroud becomes an expert on bird diseases and publishes a book on the subject. You can go look for the book. It's out there. Um, his writings are so impressive that a doctor describes him as a genius. Strout is later visited by bird lover <laughs> Stella Johnson and agrees to go into business marketing his bird remedies. He and Stella later marry, but his mother disapproves. This causes a permanent rift between mother and son. You know those mothers, you never can trust them, right? Um, so then he is abruptly transferred to the federal penitentiary at Alcatraz, a new maximum security institution where he is not permitted to keep birds. Although growing elderly, he remains independent, writing a history of the U.S. penal system that is suppressed by Shoemaker, who is now ward, oh, they call it the Rock, okay? Um, 
They also referred to um, Alcatraz as, there's some other place, oh yeah, yeah, there's a place in this country called, um, it's the maximum security, there's only one super max security prison in this country, and it's located in Colorado, and I may get back to that later because um, there's something going on there, because um, they have this super max prison facility in Colorado, and uh, uh, I just buzzed through the list of inmates yesterday, and they're all people that were PSYOPs people, right? Fake crimes that are, they say are locked up in this place. Like, where are they locking up there, right? Um, so, yeah, they got all these supermax places all, around, all over the place. So, um, you know, you have, if you cross a state line, you become, it becomes federal. It, so they've convoluted it so that you could get charged no matter what, okay? So, um, let me give you a little bit about his, oh, the other part of his backstory, they said that he was still at odds. He he actually helped end a prison rebellion in 1946 by throwing out the two firearms acquired by the convicts. This whole thing becomes very convoluted, okay? So he becomes kind of like a local hero. You'll have to watch the movie. I'm not going to read the rest of this because their writing becomes so convoluted, I'll spoil it for you. So, just watch the movie, okay? Nothing worse than somebody trying to tell you what their movie's like. So, just watch it. And then ask yourself, how did we believe any of this stuff, okay? Um, so, they say that uh, he gets in this fight with the warden, and the warden says, hey, you're my guy. So, anyway, so, there was a campaign. He was eventually transferred to another prison in Missouri, and, yeah, um, I don't know. Here's his so-called backstory. Robert Franklin Stroud. January 28, 1890 was when he arrived. He departed this planet on November 21, 1963. He was known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. He was a convicted murderer, a, uh, let me see... American federal prisoner and author who has been cited as one of the most notorious criminals in the United States. During his time at Leavenworth Penitentiary, he reared and sold birds and became a respected, respected ornithologist. That's somebody who deals with birds, ornithology. From 1942 to nineteen fifty. Nine, he was incarcerated at Alcatraz, where regulations did not allow him to keep birds. Stroud was never released from the federal prison system. He was in prison from 1909 to his death in 1963. Born in Seattle, Washington, Stroud ran away from his abusive father. Usually the mothers are the ones knocking their heads in, right? from his abusive father at the age of 13. By the time he was 18, he had become a pimp in the Alaska Territory. In January 1909, he had shot and killed a bartender who attacked his mistress, a crime for which he was sentenced to 12 years in the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island in Puget Sound. Something goes on in Washington State. Something goes on. 
the Spanish Spanish flu 1918 started in Washington State. We have all these creeps living in Washington State. You know, you got Costco, you got Amazon, you got Microsoft. This whole thing has been in flames at Washington State. Just a little aside here. Stroud gained a reputation as a dangerous inmate who frequently had confrontations with fellow inmates and staff. In 1916, he stabbed and killed a guard. Stroud was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death by hanging, but after several trials, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in solitary confinement. Yeah, it sure was. In 1920, while in solitary confinement in the federal penitentiary of Leavenworth, Stroud discovered a nest with three injured sparrows in the prison yard. He cared for them and within a few years had acquired about 300 canaries. <laughs> okay, so let me get this straight. He's in a solitary confinement, and while he's there, instead of staring at the walls and wondering when somebody's going to bang on that door and let him out for one... In solitary, they get out for one hour a day, okay, supposedly. Um, yeah, so uh, I think that... Um, I think it's a, a little bit of a stretch here, okay? <laughs> the fact that he was able to set up... I mean, come on. Do you know how many how many um, cages and stuff it must take to house 300 canaries? I mean, that's a lot of canaries, okay? I've never... Full disclosure, I've never owned a canary. In the 60s, I didn't own a parrot, but I've never owned a canary. <laughs> so, and remember, while he's still in his prison cell, he began extensive research into birds after being granted equipment by a prison reforming warden. Stroud wrote Diseases of Canaries, which was smuggled out of Leavenworth and published in 1933, as well as a later edition in 1943. So you want to look for a book called Diseases of Canaries, if you have any sick canaries in your house, and the author's name would be Stroud, S-T-R-O-U-D. I'm going to take a guess here, okay? I guess they probably stole this stuff about the canaries from somebody else. And then they had to figure out a way to come up with how they invented it right rather than stole it. So um, he made important contributions to avian pathology, most notably a cure for the hemorrhagic septica family of diseases. Now, I, I can't even pronounce it. I'm sorry. You'll have to look, this, <laughs> look up this guy. Gaining much respect and some level of sympathy among fellow bird people. Well, i got to close this for now. How they came up with this story is just a mystery to me. But remember, folks, real people write these stories to control, manipulate, and horrify the rest of us. So when they do put those chains around our waist and stuff, we have already heard the drill, right? We've heard chain music growing up. We've heard crazy stories about people working on chain gangs. You know, we, we heard in the 90s they reinstituted chain gangs in Arizona and Georgia and different parts of this country. So, I don't know. If you want a more complete look at the American prison system, just send me a mail. I'll, I'll, I'll muster up the energy. I have the file already about all the stats about the prison here. 
But, you know, I would hope that by now, you know, you're very smart people. I would hope by now you probably see that the deception has been pretty intense, right? Get the entire rest of the world to think this is the greatest place on earth. And what is hiding behind the curtain? Well, I would have to declare a horror show. (laughs) Be safe out there. Goodbye for now. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There's rich folks eating from a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep a-moving And that's what tortures me That lonesome whistle Oh my blues away